everyone, and welcome back to Mince's Health Law Diagnosed, a podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Neely Yolen, and I'm joined once again by my esteemed colleagues, Karen Lovich and Rachel Yant, to discuss the final rules amending the regulations to the federal anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law. This is the second part of our two-part series, so if you tuned in to the last episode, you'll know that we focused primarily on the final rules amending the anti-kickback safe harbors, with an eye toward how different provider types may or may not benefit from the changes. Today, we're going to tackle the final rule amending the Stark Law regulations, which, unlike the anti-kickback law, is a strict liability statute. That, of course, makes compliance imperative for healthcare providers. With this in mind, I thought we could kick things off with a discussion of the clarifications and modifications that reflect CMS's effort to mitigate the impact on what many of us referred to as imperfect compliance or technical noncompliance with the Stark Law. Rachel, why don't we start with you? Yeah, great question. I think one very helpful change that should help mitigate some of the technical noncompliance is this new exception for limited remuneration to a physician, which protects compensation up to $5,000 annually for services performed without the need for assigned writing or compensation that's set in advance, assuming certain conditions are met. So, for example, you might have a situation where, let's just say, a long-term care facility might have an urgent need for a short-term medical director because their previous medical director unexpectedly resigned. And so due to the urgency, the parties maybe failed to enter into a signed written agreement or they didn't set the compensation in advance, um, which is both required by both the personal services and the fair market value exceptions. And previously, these kinds of fairly common situations presented some risk under of uh, technical noncompliance with the Stark Law. And there's still some risk here, but now, um, provided that the compensation doesn't exceed that $5,000 limit, this arrangement could be covered by the exception for limited remuneration to a physician. So um, I can chime in here, too, and provide another couple of examples. And so one of which relates to uh, the grace period for writings or agreements that don't uh, fully comply with um, CMS's requirements. And so, you know, CMS has been chipping away at the Stark Law's writing and signature requirements for a number of years. And with the um, Stark self-disclosure protocol, I think CMS is has been seeing over the years that it's receiving many self-disclosures that are based just on technical non-compliance, such as not having a signature or starting to pay a physician without um, yet having um, the agreement fully documented. And so previously, the parties had 90 days to get all the signatures um, on the agreement. And so now what has happened with the final rule is that CMS has expanded that to allow 90 days in certain specific circumstances in which um, to put the writing together um, and get it documented. Um, There are some modifications to some other exceptions as well um, that are intended to get at technical noncompliance. And, you know, I think one example which is consistent with what we just talked about is 
um, the recruitment exception where um, CMS has eliminated the need for the practice to sign the agreement if the practice isn't benefiting under it. So it will be interesting to see how these changes do or don't affect um, self-disclosures as well as, you know, False Claims Act cases based on Stark Law technical noncompliance. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess you could say these help CMS as well as the providers. Yeah, um, I think that's definitely right. <laughs> um, another welcome change, which is uh, less on the technical compliance side, but certainly welcome, are the new definitions for the so-called big three requirements that providers need to consider in all their business relationships. And I'm referring to fair market value, commercial reasonableness, and taking into account the volume and value of referrals. Can you tell us about these new defined terms? Sure. So CMS has, as Neely pointed out, made some changes to the big three requirements, which cover a number of different exceptions. And so the first change relates to the definition of fair market value. Now, we didn't really see a substantive change with the changes to the definition of fair market value, but CMS instead took the current definition and reorganized it um, so that it's clear which parts of the definition apply to uh, space leases, equipment leases, and then other types of arrangements. And so, you know, it's not really a substantive change, but I think, you know, just a clarification. What was interesting is that, you know, CMS did have some discussion around um, in the Federal Register related to uh, use of salary surveys to determine fair market value. And I think, you know, in particular, hospital clients found uh, this discussion to be helpful. And so CMS acknowledged in the commentary that um, salary surveys, while useful, are, you know, a are not necessarily dispositive, but are nonetheless a good starting point. And so I think that is some comfort for hospitals and other providers um, who tend to rely on salary surveys and or or perhaps not <laughs> um, in making these decisions. So in other words, it's not the be all end all. There are other you know, sources of information, but it is one particular data point. One of the other prongs of the big three is um, volume or value of uh, referrals or other business generated between the parties. And historically, this concept had uh, never really been defined and um, CMS has made its first attempt to do so by offering what it describes as a bright line test. And um, the way the test works is that compensation is considered to be taking volume or value into account if the compensation varies based on volume or value of referrals. So in other words, the referrals have to be a variable in the calculation of the compensation. And compensation, therefore, would have to increase or decrease based on the number or value of referrals. And so, you know, I think providers are going to, um, you know, find it useful to have a definition, you know, so I think that's definitely uh, good news. But unfortunately, you know, we have some bad news with this um, particular change as well. 
because we on the anti-kickback statute side, um, we will not have a bright line test. And so, you know, providers and others who rely on the kickback statute um, will be left wondering, you know, what uh, the OIG considers to be taking into account volume or value of referrals. Um, and then finally, we have uh, what I think most providers consider to be a welcome change, which is the addition of a definition for the term commercially reasonable. And this term, you know, has been uh, vexing for providers over the years. And, you know, it's always been particularly concerning when one provider needs to, when a provider needs to rent space from uh, a physician or physician group and um, has to be able to demonstrate under the exception for space leases that the arrangement's commercially reasonable. And it does come up in a number of the other exceptions as well. And it's been concerning because there's never been a codified definition of commercially reasonable, only some brief discussion in an old um, Federal Register commentary. And so CMS has added a definition for the term. It's, it looks at the particular circumstances of the arrangement and considers whether the arrangement furthers a legitimate business purpose of the parties and um, the arrangement um, has to be sensible considering the characteristics of the parties such as size, type, scope, and specialty. And also, you know, importantly, the arrangement can be commercially reasonable if even if it doesn't result in profit for one or more parties. And I think, you know, this is particularly important for laboratories who do rent space from physician landlords for patient service centers and have been concerned for many years that those arrangements uh, might not be considered commercially reasonable, you know, if they're not profitable factoring out the physician's referrals. And it's important for labs because there are other reasons other than profit of that particular patient service center, why they would want to have it. So for example, payers, um, commercial insurers, you know, will often require there to be a certain number of patient service centers or to have them, you know, in certain places to make sure that members are served. And, you know, there's a variety of reasons why they might want to do that. And, you know, CMS did offer some other examples of you know, reasons why providers would enter into unprofitable arrangements. And so they include like providing charity care or improving quality care and health outcomes. Yeah, I agree that that's really helpful guidance for providers. I know profitability is definitely something they all consider or previously considered with this exception. Yeah, absolutely. I want to move away from defined terms and ask you about the Stark Law's directed referral rule, which underwent some important changes, but we'll get back to some definitions in a little bit. Prior to these changes going into effect, this rule allowed hospitals and other DHS entities to require employed or contracted physicians to refer patients to a particular provider, practitioner, or supplier if certain requirements were met. The new guidance on directed referrals suggests that CMS recognizes that hospitals and other providers that engage the services of physicians can have legitimate business interest in steering patients to particular providers within their health system. 
the directed referral rule has been around for over 20 years, but it seems to really be trending now among health systems. Why do you think it's getting so much buzz of late? And of course, can you tell us about the changes that were made in the final rule? Yeah, that's right. As you said, it's actually not a new concept, but it seems to be getting a lot more awareness lately. I think previously, a lot of healthcare organizations, they mistakenly thought that the Stark Law or maybe some other fraud and abuse laws prohibited them from requiring their contracted or employed physicians to sort of refer patients within the system or otherwise refer patients to certain providers or suppliers. And there's also just sort of this desire to avoid interfering in physicians' medical judgment. Plus, I think there's some optics to it, you know, as a health system or other healthcare provider, you want your physicians to sort of refer within your network because it's the best and not necessarily because they're required to. But that being said, patient leakage is really a big problem for a lot of healthcare networks and systems, and it can really result in substantial lost revenue. And at times, the issue really lies with your employed and contracted physicians referring patients outside of your network or your system. And so while health systems may be wary of placing these kinds of requirements on physicians, they they are permittable under the Stark Law. Um, you know, these entities, they, they can require their contracted and employed physicians to make referrals within the network, provided that the requirement is set out in a signed writing and that the requirement does not apply if the patient expresses a preference for a different provider or supplier or the physician determines that the referral is not in the patient's best interest. So I think that the changes that have been made, they, they've just raised some awareness that, that this is um, permissible. Karen, you want to tell us about the changes to the directed referral requirements specifically? Yes. So, you know, as, as Rachel mentioned, um, a lot of providers have historically been hesitant to direct referrals. But, you know, perhaps now with these changes that CMS has made and the discussion around them in which, you know, CMS very clearly acknowledges um, that, you know, it is okay to direct referrals as long as you comply with CMS's rules. Perhaps we'll see more hospitals uh, go down this road. You know, it's really, um, Rachel and I recently did a kind of mini survey of hospital and health system clients to find out what they were doing in this area. And uh, I have to say, we were surprised to see how few hospitals have been taking advantage of this requirement. So we're very interested to see what happens. So the final rule makes three significant changes. Um, the first is that changes to the compensation or to the formula for determining it uh, have to be made prospectively. So, um, for example, compensation can't change in the renewal term based on referrals or a lack thereof in the initial term. So I, I think the concept is you can't punish someone prospectively for referrals in the past. Now, the second change is that um, CMS deleted the requirement that the payment can't take into account the volume or value of anticipated or required referrals. And CMS kind of, and this leads to the third change, um, CMS, you know, really changed the focus of how the compensation is determined and um, added a requirement that neither the existence of the compensation arrangement nor the amount of the compensation 
can be contingent on the number or value of the physician's referrals to the particular provider. However, um, the provider can establish a percentage or ratio that has to be met. And so I think it's a lot easier to understand this particular uh, set of changes by looking at some examples that CMS provided of arrangements that would be impermissible because they're contingent on the number or value of referrals. So the first is a hospital increases the physician's compensation in the renewal term only if the physician made a targeted number of referrals for DHS to the hospital in the current term. So that's the example I just gave above. It's very similar. Um, the second is a hospital that refuses to renew or that terminates in the current term um, unless the value of the physician's referrals generate a certain amount of profit for the hospital. And then finally, a compensation arrangement that's terminated if the physician failed to refer a sufficient number of patients for DHS or the value of the physician's referrals failed to meet a particular target. However, if the target is a percentage of referrals instead, rather than a particular amount or a particular number, it wouldn't be prohibited. I would also just add that previously the directed referral requirement was sort of a special rule that applied to the employment, personal services, and managed care exceptions. But now it's actually an affirmative requirement under those exceptions, as well as the exceptions for academic medical centers, physician incentive plans, group practice arrangements for the hospital, fair market value, indirect compensation, and the limited remuneration to a physician. Well, I could certainly see why health systems including those struggling with patient leakage, as you said, are all abuzz about these changes, and specifically the idea of tying compensation to in-system referral percentages. Um, that seems like a very unique opportunity. I'll definitely be interested to see how many of them take advantage of it. I agree with both of you about the optics and that perhaps being the reason why we didn't see too much of this in years past, but we'll see what happens from here on out. Um, we talked a few minutes ago about some of the new defined terms, so now we can go back to them beyond the big three. Can you tell us about the ones that you view as having the greatest or least utility for providers? Yeah, great question. I think one change that might have an impact more on a retrospective basis is the change that CMS made to the definition of designated health services or DHS. CMS clarified that an inpatient hospital service is not actually DHS if the furnishing of the service does not affect Medicare's payment to the hospital under Medicare's inpatient prospective payment system or the IPPS or other prospective payment systems that CMS sort of deems as operating similarly to the IPPS. So, for example, if a specialist who is not responsible for a patient's admission to the hospital, that specialist orders an x-ray for an inpatient, the x-ray would not qualify as DHS under the new definition, which means that the specialist can have a financial relationship with a hospital that does not satisfy a Stark Law exception, and the hospital can still bill Medicare for those inpatient hospital services without violating the Stark Law. Um, on the one hand, this change could significantly decrease the number of hospital-physician relationships subject to the Stark Law, but really I think from a practical perspective, we expect that this change is more likely to apply to an overpayment analysis on a retrospective basis 
then it would sort of alleviate compliance obligations or physician contracting um, on a go, a go forward basis, because I think it would really be difficult to anticipate prior to a referral, whether that referral would cause prospective payment to increase. Um, but on the other hand, upon learning that a, a hospital has a financial arrangement with a physician who refers to the hospital and, and the arrangement doesn't meet a stark exception, if that physician was not the one to order the inpatient hospital admission under this revised definition of DHS, it might actually operate to reduce the amount that needs to be refunded because the hospital can now isolate payments um, only for DHS referrals by the physician that resulted in an increase over the expected payment for any refund that may be required. Karen, is there anything you want to talk about in terms of definitions? Uh, yes, Neely, there is um, a change to the definition of remuneration that I wanted to point out because I think it's going to be of interest to a number of our independent lab, hospital lab, and other lab clients. Under um, the definition of remuneration, there is an exception for the provision of items, devices, or supplies that are given to physicians used solely to collect, transport, process, or store specimens for the entity, such as the lab, um, that's providing such items, devices, or supplies, or to order or communicate the results of tests for the providing entity. So if you can meet this exception, whatever is given to the physician is not considered remuneration. And so um, some examples might be an interface that allows the lab system to talk to the physician's EHR uh, platform. Um, it might be test tubes or other items needed for specimen collection. Um, it might be a portal that's made available for physicians to um, enter orders and get results. But there has always been some consternation around the fact that surgical items, devices, and supplies have been specifically excluded from the use solely carve-out and the reason is that CMS believe that they might have value to physicians that are unrelated to specimen collection and therefore couldn't meet the test. So CMS decided to remove the exception to the carve out and instead is focusing on how the item that is given is actually used um, rather than what the item is and what the item costs. Um, however, you know, CMS did uh, take this opportunity to remind labs that, you know, this this exception really is for, you know, low cost um, items, devices and supplies for the most part. And that um, items for infection control like gloves um, still should not be given under this particular exception. But all in all, I think the labs are, are going to welcome this change. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that at least from what I've heard so far, a vast majority of these changes seem to be very provider friendly and designed to meet the goal of re reducing compliance burdens. So <laughs> begs the question, are there any changes that are not provider friendly? Yeah, that's a great question. There, there's uh, one of the few changes that's not provider friendly was um, changes that were made to this existing exception for isolated financial transactions. The isolated financial transaction permitted a one-time payment during a six-month period, and it's a lot less onerous than some similar exceptions, like the ones for personal services and fair market value. 
because um, under that exception, arrangements do not have to be in writing and the compensation doesn't have to be set in advance. So previously, it was a common industry practice to rely on the isolated transaction exception when parties have failed to set forth an arrangement in writing prior to when the physician starts performing services. In these situations, providers might pay for multiple services in a single payment during a six-month period, which was seemingly allowable under the isolated financial transaction exception. But now these payments are not protected by the exception because CMS made clear that the exception does not protect a single payment covering multiple services. This exception really now just has a very limited utility, and it only applies for truly one-time transactions like a one-time sale of a practice or maybe a single instance of forgiveness of an amount owed in a settlement of some kind of bona fide dispute with the physician. Um, however, if you think back about what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, um, we sort of expect that in these kinds of situations where parties have been paying physicians for services for a limited duration without a signed writing, they may be able to use that new exception for a limited remuneration. Although keep in mind, the remuneration has to be less than $5,000 to use that exception. Hmm. Okay, so the downside has a little bit of an upside, I guess. Um, I'm also hearing a lot of chatter about CMS's elimination from most of the Stark Law exceptions, the requirement that the arrangement comply with the anti-kickback statute. That was also always one of the prongs in some of the important exceptions. What are your thoughts on that change? I think overall, it's a welcome change for the healthcare industry. You know, you pointed out earlier the fact that, you know, these two laws, the Stark Law and the Anti-Kickback Statute, are quite different in their goals and requirements. The Stark Law is strict liability civil statute, kickback being um, a criminal intent-based statute. And so bootstrapping compliance with a criminal intent-based statute to a strict liability law, I think never really made any sense. And I think it was, you know, disconcerting for providers who were trying to use these exceptions to comply with the CERC law, because, you know, you never really knew um, if you might be complying with the kickback statute for sure. So I think it makes sense to eliminate this and uh, from the, most of the exceptions. But, you know, I will point out one exception that still does contain this particular requirement is the fair market value exception, which is one, you know, that is used. It's it's somewhat of a catch-all exception that is frequently used. And so OIG just felt like there weren't enough other safeguards built in to um, allow for removing it from that particular exception. That is a really good explanation, actually, one that I hadn't given much thought to. So thank you. It's also a good segue to my next question, because on the last episode, we discussed in uh, quite a bit of detail the new anti-kickback safe harbors for value-based arrangements. And then we touched briefly on how the Stark Law exceptions for value-based arrangements are similar or different from one another. Um, one of the key differences that you pointed out was how the OIG excluded certain providers from the safe harbors, laboratories, pharmaceutical manufacturers, post manufacturers, distributors and suppliers, and PBMs, um, primarily due to program integrity concerns, but CMS did not follow suit. Why do you think that is? 
Yeah, that's right. The OIG made the decision to exclude those entities from the value-based safe harbor. And CMS actually was considering doing the same. Um, CMS kind of cited the same concerns that the OIG had that these entities posed a sort of increased risk of fraud and abuse and that they don't have enough direct patient contact to justify their inclusion as parties working under a protected value-based arrangement. And there was also a desire to be consistent with the OIG. A lot of the terminology is consistent across the safe harbors and the exceptions, at least the value-based terminology. But CMS received a number of comments with detailed examples of how labs and demipost suppliers in particular contribute to a value-based healthcare delivery and payment system. And in the end, CMS said that it found those um, commentators' um, statements persuasive. So CMS ultimately did not exclude these entities from the Starkwell exception. However, there is sort of a word of warning, I would say, in the final rule because CMS said that it would continue to monitor the evolution of value-based arrangements um, to ensure that the inclusion of all of these providers and suppliers at VB, as VBE participants doesn't create any program integrity risk. Thanks, Rachel. I'm going to switch gears and ask you about the changes to the existing exception for electronic health records, as well as a new safe harbor and exception for donation of cybersecurity technology and services. Given the mounting concerns about financial losses and risks to patients' privacy caused by cyber attacks against hospitals and other healthcare providers, the new cybersecurity safe harbor and exception is another welcome change in the industry that's getting a lot of buzz. Who wants to give us a quick overview? I can take that one, Neely. I, I do agree that the healthcare industry, and particularly hospitals, uh, welcome this new flexibility to donate cybersecurity technology and services to physicians and other providers, um, because physicians in particular often can't afford sufficient protection against cyber attacks. And when they don't have the same level of protection as institutional providers, it ends up weakening the entire healthcare information ecosystem. So the exception, and, and you know, I should mention there, there's an exception under Stark and a safe harbor under the kickback regulations that both address cybersecurity uh, donations. In most respects, the exception and the safe harbor Align. So I'm just going to refer to the exception here since we're focusing uh, primarily on the Stark Law. But the exception, um, it actually does not restrict uh, permissible donors at all. I think that was a disappointment to some in the lab industry who had experienced um, a great deal of pressure from physicians to make EHR donations and um, that pressure led to a couple of key TAM cases, more than a couple, actually a few. And so I think there were a number of stakeholders in the lab industry who wanted labs to be exempted from this exception and safe harbor as they are now since 2013 from the EHR donation safe harbor and exception. But uh, nonetheless, um, CMS and OIG decided that they should be included. So um, I also want to mention that there is no cost sharing requirement, which is very different from the EHR donation exception in Safe Harbor, which requires a 15% uh, cost sharing payment. 
The exception is um, quite broad. It applies to technology and services necessarily and used predominantly to implement, maintain, or reestablish cybersecurity. So covered technology can include a variety of software like malware protection software, can include data protection encryption tools, email traffic filtering, um, and it can also um, include hardware, which again is a difference between EHR donations and cybersecurity donations. A broad range of services would also qualify for protection, such as uh, risk assessments um, or analysis services, cybersecurity training services, um, as well as assistance with uh, cybersecurity software, you know, developing, installing, and updating it. So, you know, I think all in all, it's it's a good thing for the healthcare industry. And um, I just hope that it doesn't result in the types of investigations and uh, settlements that we saw involving EHR donations. Mm. Yeah, I'm just curious, besides hospitals donating to physicians and physician groups, are you familiar or have either of you worked with other types of providers who've made these types of donations? Well, I mean, obviously this type of donation is new. Um, and so I think hospitals donating to physicians will be the most, you know, common arrangement that we see, you know, but again, you could see home health agencies, nursing homes, labs, and others donating to physicians you know, it's even possible you could see hospitals donating to, you know, small, you know, ancillary service providers that they're doing business with, perhaps who can't afford it. Um, so it, it will definitely be interesting to see how it ends up getting used. Yeah, that makes sense. Yes, thank you. I am going to end this episode with the same question that I asked you at the end of the last episode, which is, what do you see as the key takeaways of the final role? And who do you think the big winners and losers are? I can answer that. I think um, hospitals are clearly the big winners and who I think CMS sort of designed a lot of the changes to um, benefit, although a lot of different healthcare organizations that contract with physicians will find these changes beneficial. Um, I think just some of the reduced risk of technical non-compliance due to that new limited remuneration exception, and then some of the changes that have been made to the signature and writing requirements, and also some of those key terms that we now have more clear definitions that Karen went through. Those are all really helpful changes that the industry is, is welcoming. So I guess there are no losers. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think generally speaking, I think that's right. I mean, the only um, limitation might be, and, and we talked about this in our last episode, would be those um, would-be participants in value-based arrangements who you know were left out of the mix, such as compounding pharmacies, you know, labs, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers, et cetera. Good point. Glad you brought that up. Well, thank you both so much for being here today. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you have any questions about this or any prior episode, 
or you would like to propose questions or a topic for an upcoming episode, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed@mins.com. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you all back here in a few weeks when we'll be talking about the current state and future of telehealth.